This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast, hosted on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Linda Graham. Linda, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm truly delighted. And it, the, it's a pleasure for me as well. I'm really excited to talk about your book, which seems uh, more important now than ever. And we will get into that uh, in a moment. But before we do, just to share with our audience a uh, quick about you. Linda Graham, MFT, is the author of Resilience and also Bouncing Back, the winner of the 2013 Books for a Better Life Award. She is an experienced psychotherapist who integrates modern neuroscience, mindfulness practices, and relational psychology in her international trainings on resilience and well-being. You can learn more about Linda at her website, www.lindagram-mlikemary-f-like-frank-t-like-tom.net, or simply, if you are checking this out on the Be Here Now website, uh, or excuse me, the uh, Be Here Now Network website, just scroll down and you will see a link to Linda's webpage, and I highly do encourage you to visit that, see uh, her offerings, learn more about her, but... That said, let's learn more about her right now in this show. Linda, again, thanks so much for for being with me today. Thank you, and I really look forward to this conversation. As do I. So what I like to do, Linda, typically in conversations is to get, before we dive into your book, a little backstory. Um, I am personally always fascinated with what transpired in someone's life to lead them to who they are today regardless of age, gender, whatever the case may be. Um, I, I just love life stories. So I'm wondering if you don't mind talking a bit about what led you to the point where we are today on this uh, podcast talking about your new book, Resilience. Well, I can start with, um, I've been a psychotherapist for a long time. Hmm. And as such, I really try to help clients strengthen their own sense of self, sure. their own sense of capacities, and their own authenticity. Mm. For about as long, I've been a practitioner of mindfulness meditation, and I really know the freedom and liberation that comes when we can let go of that sense of self and dissolve into the sacred. And so 
as I began writing the book that I wanted to be able to give my clients, I had to reconcile these two paradigms of strengthening the sense of self and letting go of the sense of self. So that's why one of the core elements of bouncing back is mindful empathy mm. so that we can be both mindful of our experiences and our reactions to our experiences and we have empathy for ourselves and for other people for having those experiences. You know, we're human beings and life can be kind of challenging. So that was the core of it. And then as I was writing the book, I told my brother that I was writing a book on resilience. And he said, huh, resilience, what's that? Oh, I know. <laughs> it's bouncing back from the terrible. So that's where the title of the book came from, was my brother's recognition of that. So in terms of my own life journey, I think because I've tried to understand how the world works <laughs> and how to, how to navigate the world, you know, kind of what are the rules, who are the role models, how do you get to anchor in your core values and live a life anchored from those, those core values, right. um, I really have looked at the wisdom of people in psychotherapy and in spiritual practice for the guidelines, the roadmaps, the role models for how to do that. Mm. And eventually came to see that learning how to cope with disappointment, how to cope with difficulty, how to cope with disaster really is a key to our well-being to be able to face the challenges and crises that are inevitable in a human life. I've had my share, everyone has their share. Of course. And then to be able to face and deal, to respond adaptively, flexibly, skillfully, in ways that not only resolve the situation, but allow us to learn from the situation, to learn from whatever happened. I've really come to um, see resilience as a, core outcome of many of the other practices that we do when we're mindful of our experiences and our reactions to our experiences and then we manage those reactions and we make wise choices about those reactions we become more resilient when we're compassionate toward ourselves and others and make allowances for being a human being and how hard that can be mm -hmm. and have compassion for how not resilient we are sometimes and come to an understanding and a compassion and a forgiveness for that, then one of those outcomes becomes resilient. When we learn resilience, when we learn how to manage trauma, when we're really dumped out of our boat and in danger of drowning, and we learn to call on friends and we learn to call on resources and we, we find our strengths again and come through to the other side, into what's called post-traumatic growth, you know, resilience is a key capacity for that. When we learn how to cultivate positive emotions so that we cultivate our gratitude and kindness and generosity and joy and awe and delight and all of these positive emotions that have been researched, the direct measurable cause and effect outcome of those practices is resilience because we learn to shift the functioning of the brain from reactivity and contraction and negativity into more receptivity, into more openness, into more possibilities of learning. So I've really come to see 
resilience as kind of core to most everything we do all day long. So, so now I really treasure that focus and being able to teach people tools that, in fact, will strengthen their resilience. And I think that's, uh, uh, well, it should go without saying, but I will say it anyway, such an important uh, thing, especially, as I mentioned earlier, the importance of this book in this day and age. I do a lot of work with uh, young adults and teenagers ages 13 to 20, male, female, and um, the ones that struggle with various mental health issues. And a lot of, as I was looking through your book, um, I, I smiled because I, I saw that we do share a lot of um, similarities in our approaches to the way in which we offer various practices. Um, but again, it's just finding that resilience and learning what that is, is incredibly important. And what I wanted to do just, just really quickly for, for our listeners is to read uh, on the back of the book, you know, to give the brief summary of what the book is. And you just did a tremendous job of talking about resilience. And I think that encapsulated the book very well. But just to help uh, for listeners, the, the back paragraph reads, whether it's a critical comment from the boss or a full-blown catastrophe, life continually dishes out challenges. Resilience is the learned capacity to cope with any level of adversity, from the small annoyance of daily life to the struggles and sorrows that break our hearts. Resilience is essential for surviving and thriving in a world full of troubles and tragedies, and it is completely train—excuse uh, me—trainable and recoverable when we know how. In resilience, Linda Graham offers clear guidance to help you develop somatic, emotional, relational, and reflective intelligence, the skills you need to confidently and effectively cope with life's inevitable challenges and crises. And the reason I wanted to read that, Linda, was because I I wanted to make sure listeners know that when we're talking about resilience, (coughs) it's not just about those big things in life. It's literally everything from you know, little T traumas, the, the small things to the big things. And, and you cover all of that in this book. And lastly, I did want to also share a, a, a friend of our show. I've had her on a number of times and just a dear personal friend, Tara Brock, who I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with. She wrote something really nice for your book. She said, Linda Graham's pioneering expertise on cultivating resilience has transformed countless lives. Now in resilience, she has compiled a clearly sequenced set of best practices that can guide us in finding freedom in the midst of life's greatest challenges. Highly recommended. And of course, you have a number of other wonderful, wonderful endorsements. But just wanted to share that one because, again, Tara is a, a dear friend to the show. So... Now that we've said all that, where are we well, at, Linda? <laughs> well, th- thank you for mentioning Tara. Yes, love who her. has been one of my mentors for yeah. many, many, many years, as she is for many, many people. Yeah. And I'm going back to what you just said about resilience is a learned capacity because I do teach that capacity, the capacities for resilience are innate in our mm. being because they are innate 
in our brain, the capacity to be resilient. We're hardwired to do that. And that capacity develops or doesn't develop based on what we learn in our earliest interactions with our parents, with our families, with teachers, with coaches, with our peers. And when we don't fully learn and develop those capacities to be resilient, which is largely a function of the brain's capacity for response flexibility, being able to perceive experience and shift gears in response to it. When that hasn't happened so well the first time around and we may get stuck in patterns of coping that are too rigid or they're too chaotic, they don't work so well, we can recover the capacities of the brain to be resilient so we recover our own capacities to learn strategies of coping that are more resilient. And that is what's learnable and trainable. That's what the neuroscience illuminates and why it's so exciting and that's why i do quote richard davidson in the book he's the director of the center for investigating healthy minds Mm -hmm. at the university of wisconsin madison and he says because the brain learns from experience and that's really the rule rather than the exception brain change is the rule rather than the exception it behooves us to choose the experiences that will send the brain in a wise and wholesome direction. So in both books, especially in Resilience, I try to provide experiences, the experiential exercises, that will help our brains and our behaviors move in a wiser and more wholesome direction. Whether, as you said, that's the little t trauma, the small annoyances and disappointments, or truly the big T trauma, I wanted to make sure that the tools I offer in the book address everything that human beings can be exposed to and are called upon to cope with. So since we know that trauma does impact brain development and brain functioning, I wanted to include tools that help people recover from the trauma that has maybe derailed their capacities to be resilient and get those capacities of the brain and of our behaviors back on track. I, I think that's maybe part of the real hope of the book. Mm. I absolutely love that. And I think that segues quite nicely into uh, a question I have that, that is addressed in the book and, and something that uh, was very personally relatable to me. And the question is, why do some people react to a potential trauma and for example we can say losing their home or losing a spouse by seeming to fall apart when other people react to the same potential trauma seemingly unscathed or even growing from the experience and before you answer i share that because i actually see a little bit of myself in both both sides of that equation i definitely have um being in recovery from drugs and alcohol, I have, you know, fallen apart in that way many times. That has been a an escape for me. And then yet at other times, uh, when I'm strong in my sobriety, I've taken these, you know, kind of uh, potential traumas and use them as growing experiences. So uh, it's a bit of an interesting dichotomy to me. My, I mean, I know I'm just a weirdo enigma that, you know, I want to donate my brain and body to science because... 
God knows what's going on in here. But, um, <laughs> you know, for listeners, I think that's so important. I'm glad you talk about it in the book. So I would love for you to share a bit about that. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned not only do some people react to certain stimuli in one way and other people react to the same stressor in other ways, we can react to the same stressor differently. Sure. Depending on the phase in life and the skills we've learned and how resourced we are at any particular time. So in the book, I teach a lot about rewiring, reconditioning, Mm. the patterns that we have. So when patterns of coping we have don't work so well, how can we replace them, rewire them? Not just lay down new patterns over them, but actually rewire the old ones. So there are a lot of tools of reconditioning so that we can rewire our patterns that were learned in previous trauma or times when previously we weren't resilient. But I'm also teaching how to pre-wire, how to create new strategies, new patterns of behavior so that something potentially traumatizing actually doesn't lean us into trauma. Our coping mechanisms are not overwhelmed. And part of the research discoveries coming out of the post-traumatic growth field, how do people not only recover but actually learn and actually come into a new sense of strength, a new sense of meaning and purpose, a new sense of community. How do people do that? Yeah. A lot of it is people can rehearse what might go wrong. <laughs> and we know that life is just full of challenge and crises. No human being on the planet is immune right. from that. Yes. So the more we can learn ahead of time, tools that will calm down our nervous system that allow us to trust people so we can reach out to other people as resources and refuges the more we learn tools to actually manage those surges of anger or fear or shame or grief the more we practice those tools ahead of time then when the upset the startle actually happens we have tools to kind of ride right through it and then What I really am teaching these days, not only can we learn to become more resilient, we learn that we can learn to become more resilient. So there's a sense of competence and mastery that begins to develop. Even though I'm not exactly sure how to deal with this situation, I've never seen it before, I have dealt with other things in the past. I know I can learn tools and find resources that will help me be resilient now. So we're less scared even of what's happening. I I use the quote in the book and in my teachings all the time from Louisa May Alcott, I'm no longer afraid of storms for I'm learning how to sail my ship. I love that. The storms don't stop, but we can learn how to sail our ship. Mm, Right. Something I often say, um, it's that in my own way, it's very similar that life will happen. You know, that the waves come, but we can, in my generational, um, you know, we can learn to surf on them rather than just, you know, be thrashed upon. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, Chris, yes. I, I use that quote from Swami Satyadananda. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Yes. 
that is one of the quotes in the book because that's the message of the book. Right. <laughs> we can't stop the waves, but we can learn to surf. And once we learn that we can learn, then we get kind of eager to do the learning. Right. Absolutely. And so as you're speaking, um, and I completely am with you on everything you were saying, but I can imagine maybe one or two listeners that, you know, there are certainly people out there who think, um, you know, what you think about, what you envision, what you, um, you know, just really put your, your mind and intention into, you manifest. So I, I, personally, nothing against that. Uh, I respect that. I am not one of those people, but to each their own. But let's just say, for for example, someone sitting here listening to this and saying, well, if I'm focusing on, you know, becoming ready to handle that situation, that just means that I'm going to manifest that situation. Do you have any thoughts or any anything you would say to that? <clears throat> and it's okay if you don't. Just Well, no, keep... I do have thoughts. <laughs> um, so it's, of course, it is true that anything we can visualize is real to the brain. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to manifest it in the real world. Sure. But it is real to the brain. If we imagine a banana, the same neurons fire in the visual cortex as when we see a real banana in real time. So that's the power of guided visualizations, guided meditations. When we can visualize something, it can become a resource in the brain. So we can imagine a wiser self, a compassionate friend, uh, you know, a higher power. We can imagine those resources. We can imagine a circle of support. And they become resources that we can use to become more resilient. But one of the things I'm very careful to do in the book is to begin from the bottom up. I begin with the body, with somatic intelligence with body based tools of breath and touch and movement and visualization so that we learn how to manage our nervous systems and come back to that range of resilience from which we can learn something mm. and then I teach emotional intelligence how to manage the big waves of difficult emotions but also how to cultivate the positive emotions that will shift the functioning of the brain so that we not only feel better but we actually do better and then the tools of relational intelligence, both within ourselves, our self-awareness, our self-acceptance, how we relate to ourselves, because many of us have a really powerful and toxic inner critic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then how we relate to other people. Can we actually avail ourselves of other people in terms of being refuges and resources? And then the reflective intelligence, and I teach that last paying attention to our mental patterns, how we perceive things, the tape loops we have, do we have negative self-talk, do we have positive self-talk? So that's where someone who wants to use the tremendous powers of the mind to set an intention and begin to manifest something in the world, I'm saying there's just a whole bottom-up process that will sustain that and that works with the brain exactly the way the brain works so that we start managing our nervous system first and managing our emotions first and managing how we relate to ourselves and other people first and then we can use those tools because they're powerful of shifting how we perceive something how we respond to something what our mental patterns are one of my favorite tools that I teach is change every should to a could mm. 
because should does cause the mind to contract. There's a sense of performance or possible failure, whereas could allows the mind to open. There's a sense of possibility. And that may be a completely unconscious pattern we have. But when we pay attention to that kind of self-talk and change should to could, it really changes how we relate to ourselves and to our world. So yes, these tools are powerful and there's a, a large context, there's a large framework for them. You know, and I absolutely love that you just mentioned the should to could because again, I mentioned earlier in recovery, drugs to alcohol. I used to say when talking about my experiences, I should have died a number of times. The way I was living, I am very lucky to be alive today. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. But Mm -hmm. what I recognized at some point, and it wasn't something I read, it was just, it, it naturally kind of hit me. It was like, no. I could have died a number mm-hmm. of times. I am mm-hmm. still alive, which means I shouldn't have died because I am still here. Um, you know, and and that's that's all can spawn a whole nother conversation about, you know, then the guilt comes up about friends who've died, et cetera, et cetera. Why am I here? Why are they not? But, you know, I, I do my best to work with that uh, while honoring the fact that no I could have died and Mm -hmm. I'm still here for a reason and I think that's such an important shift in perspective so thank you for saying Mm -hmm. that well and that leads me to remember Peter Levine's quote he's the founder of Peter yeah right founder of somatic experiencing trauma therapy where he says trauma is a fact of life yes it doesn't have to be a life sentence yes And when people can experience that it's possible to overcome addiction, to overcome trauma, to overcome catastrophe, and to be able to find joy in life again, meaning in life again, that's the hallmark of post-traumatic growth, to be able to embrace life, not in spite of what happened, but because of what happened. Yes. Because of the learning in the process of recovery. Absolutely so beautifully said and and yes uh and for anyone listening who's not familiar peter levine l-e-v-i-n-e uh he has done such tremendous work around trauma um he's one of uh, many people i think i've mentioned uh bessel van der kolk gabor mate you know there's a lot of wonderful authors i i uh, highly recommend listeners check out who are dealing with any kinds of traumas or addictions or just life struggles really tremendous work and of course Linda Graham is among them now too <laughs> Chris if I could jump in here you one, of the reasons, can. one of the reasons I also always recommend Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score yeah. to people is that Bessel understands that many many modalities need to be used to deal with trauma and he brings in the body with yoga And he brings in emotions with dance and connecting with people. And he brings in all kinds of modalities, not just talk therapy. He brings in the other ways of dealing with trauma because most of the time people need to deal with trauma first in their bodies, in their nervous systems, in their emotional landscape before they're home enough 
to deal with the bigger picture of the dynamics of relating to people or their own thought patterns that can, you know, send them in a spiral. Absolutely. And it was through them, like Bessel and Peter and uh, Gabor as well, where I, that was the first introduction for me to sayings like the issues are in the tissues, just like Bessel <laughs> says, you know, the mm-hmm. body keeps the score. It really mm-hmm really does absolutely mm-hmm. incredible but and the, the quote that i like to use is from my colleague frankie perez mm. who says how you respond to the issue is the issue ah i like that and i might, that's have, really, to, might mm-hmm, have to borrow that's, that one <laughs> that's key for resilience how you respond to the issue is the issue yes. and so i try to teach people tools that will help them come out of the inner critic and beating up on themselves, and I'm such a loser, coming out of that to relating to themselves with more self-acceptance of the vulnerabilities and more claiming of their own strengths so that, in fact, they can respond to any issue from their own strengths and from a compassionate acceptance of their vulnerabilities, but they're able to engage they don't right. have to run away and hide. They're able to engage with the issue, and that's key to being resilient. And that's what I love about the book. It's one thing to talk about these issues, um, and that is important, but it's another to offer means and methods to get to these places of healing and reintegrating um, our our dissociated you know, selves and, and whatnot. You offer a number of practices in your book. Um one of them is the hand to heart practice. Uh, mm-hmm. If if you want to share about that one, I would love to hear it. Or if <laughs> you'd like to share about another one, I love to give our listeners things to work with. So, you know, that's one that uh, that did stick out to me. But by all means, if you want to share a different one, the floor is yours, Linda. Well, thank you. Well, actually, I do love to share hand on the heart. It is always the first exercise that I teach clients that I teach in a workshop because it is so powerful. It can Mm. calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. So it's simple. You just simply place your own hand on your heart center so you can feel the warm touch of your hand on your heart and begin to breathe more slowly, more gently, more deeply into the heart center. And then if you wish, breathing in a sense of ease or safety or goodness into the heart center and then taking a moment to remember a moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another human being not the whole relationship but just one moment and this could be with a partner or a child or a friend or a therapist it could be with a spiritual figure and it could be with a pet And for many people, pets are the easiest place to start Mm -hmm. because we can feel safe and loved and cherished with a pet. But you evoke this memory, you evoke the felt sense of this memory and let the feeling kind of wash through your body and stay there for about 30 seconds. And what is happening is you're using the the parasympathetic branch of your nervous system to bring your nervous system back into a sense of calm. So warm touch of the hand, breathing deeply, breathing in a sense of ease and goodness. But then you're using the memory of feeling safe and loved and cherished 
with another being to activate the release of oxytocin. And oxytocin is the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. It's the hormone of safety and trust, of bonding and belonging. And when we can activate the release of oxytocin, the nervous system calms down and we feel a sense of safety and trust again. When we practice activating the oxytocin as we go through our lives, and hugs are a good way to do that, just massaging your scalp or the back of your neck is a good way to do that. Any warm, safe touch is a good way to do that. When we get the oxytocin flowing in our system, you can preempt the stress response from even happening in the first place. You can feel a little moment of ah, and then calm right back down because the oxytocin is working in your body brain. So that's the first tool that I teach so that people can just navigate the, the little startles mm-hmm. and upsets and concerns that happen throughout our day in a way that's skillful, you know, just go around practicing hand on the heart. Yeah. And, and then that lets us learn that we can learn some of those other tools as well that will allow us to be more resilient, like the change every should do a could that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, and, and f- so thank you very much for sharing that practice. Um, I've, I actually tried it as I read it, and it's beautiful. I often, when I teach uh, loving-kindness meditations and workshops and whatnot, I always start with hand over the heart as well. I just think that is such a wonderful form of beginning uh, the practice with self-care, self-compassion. Mm-hmm. But as you were speaking, you know, you're, you were mentioning how we can really change our brains and Mm -hmm. in the book you do talk about that changing our brains to change our lives for the better so Mm -hmm. is that something um you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about well because the brain learns from experience always right and only (laughs) the brain learns from experience and because our experiences when we repeat them create more neural firing of that experience in the brain and when you repeat the neural firing, you can create new neural circuitry, new patterns of responding. So since we're learning how the brain works and we're learning how to work with neuroplasticity, we might as well learn how to do our own self-directed neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and actually give ourselves the experiences that allow us to come into more resilient relationship with ourselves, with other people, with the experiences that we're having in our world. You're talking about the loving kindness practice as we repeat loving kindness practice for ourselves for people where it's easy to practice, for people where it's hard to practice, we're actually strengthening the circuitry that allows us <laughs> to do that practice. It becomes a little more automatic and habitual. So I found that um, my clients especially really like learning how their brain works and learning that they can mm. learn how to change their brain. It gives them this sense of competence and mastery that's very motivating. And so we tend to then keep up with the practices that will actually send our behaviors in a wise direction. Now, I honestly don't know if I answered your question, but I'm happy to try again if I didn't. No, I actually, I think you did. You, you, um, 
I appreciate that. It's such a big question, you know, and, and there's so many different ways it uh, that we can go with that. But I, I do feel at least on my end and mm-hmm. I'm hoping listeners feel the same way. But no, um, I've appreciated you're very articulate and concise in your answers. And um, so I would be highly surprised if anyone listening did not follow that. So I okay, can I tr- can I try again? Because I just thought of another way I could try again. Uh, that's the show. We, we, we go with what happens. It, like I said, okay. it's organic. So have at it. <laughs> so I actually do teach these mechanisms of brain change so that people feel more comfortable in yes. learning how to change their brain. Okay. And so the, the easiest way, of course, is new conditioning. It's a new experience and you repeat it many times. And that new experience gradually strengthens new circuitry in the brain. So when we practice gratitude, when we focus our attention, when we practice our listening skills, when we practice compassion for ourselves or loving kindness for ourselves or other people, we're actually laying down the circuitry that makes it easier to do that practice going forward. So new conditioning creates new patterns in the brain, new experiences. And it it does that most easily when we do it the way the brain works the best which is little and often, small experiences repeated many times. So when I'm teaching people to do a gratitude practice, it's more effective, actually, if they write down three things at the end of every day rather than waiting till the weekend and writing down 20 things. It's actually more effective if you meditate for 10 minutes every morning rather than waiting for the weekend and meditating for an hour. So little, little and often, small experiences repeated many times. And that's what will install the new neural circuitry. Now, new conditioning does not rewire the old conditioning. And when we're stressed out or tired or scared, we will re- will resort to the patterns that were laid down earlier. The brain does what's the most efficient and it will go to something it already knows how to do. Mm. But when we want to recondition or rewire those old patterns, the way it works and This has only been seen by the neuroscientists in their scanners in the last five to seven years, but it's the basis of trauma therapy for decades. And that is to activate the neural network that is remembering a negative memory, a negative experience, and of course, you chunk it down, small, small, small. But you activate the network of a negative memory and then you create or evoke a positive experience, a positive memory that will directly contradict or disconfirm that original negative memory. Mm. And of course, you can practice creating those positive resources first. But when you activate both negative and positive and juxtapose them so you're aware of the negative and the positive at the same time in your brain, in your awareness, or you toggle back and forth, When the positive is stronger, it will rewire the negative. That is how trauma therapy works. So it doesn't erase the memory, but it just diffuses the charge of it. And the the positive becomes more how we see ourselves and relate to ourselves. So reconditioning is very powerful. And I teach a lot of tools in the book to do that. So I'm going to throw in here one more example of doing that, which is You can use movement. You don't even have to use your thinking to do this. But if you let your body 
inhabit a posture that feels negative to you, mm-hmm. like bent over in shame or all clenched up in anger. And then without even thinking, you don't even have to know what to call this, but you just let your body move, let your body lead to a posture that feels the opposite. It just feels the opposite. And you go back and forth a few times between the posture that embodies the negative and then the posture that embodies the positive. And then you come to something kind of integrative in the middle. You can use movement to rewire your experiences in the body of holding on to those negative traumatizing memories. So reconditioning is very, very powerful. And then there's a third way, which is what I call deconditioning, so that when the neuroscientists first began scanning the brains of people as they were functioning in real time, and they would ask them to solve a puzzle or you know do a task, and they would see which structures of the brain lit up when they were doing that task. They thought that when the brain was, when they weren't asking people to do a task, they thought the brain would be quiet. And they found out the opposite. The brain is more active than ever and all over the brain. Mm -hmm. So this has now come to be accepted and recognized and called the default network of the brain. So it's just the brain in its own mental play space connecting the dots, making associations, making links, playing on its own. We experience this when we have dreams or when we're lost in a reverie. But it's also the mode of processing where we get insight and intuition, something we never thought of before, and then it comes up to us out of the blue, and that's using this default network for deconditioning. So I teach a lot of exercises that will use guided meditations, guided visualizations to help people come up with a circle of support. And then you take that circle of support, people who believe in you and are willing to walk through fire with you. You take Mm -hmm. that circle of support and imagine walking into a job interview or an audit from the IRS or having to confront a family member about something. And you imagine it. And you can come up with new insights into how you're going to handle that situation just by using that mode of processing in your brain. So all three of those mechanisms, new conditioning, reconditioning, deconditioning, are ways we can change how the brain operates and we're strengthening, I'll throw this in here too, we're strengthening the functioning of the prefrontal cortex, which is the center of executive functioning, it's the CEO of resilience, and It's the prefrontal cortex we use to manage our nervous system, to manage our emotions, to attune to ourselves, to attune to other people, to have a sense of self, continuity through time. And it is the structure of the brain we use for response flexibility, to shift gears. So all of these exercises strengthen the functioning of the structure of the brain we use to be more resilient. And... So that leads me, first of all, thank you, Linda. That was absolutely wonderful. Um, and that kind of leads and again seg- segues into, you know, you mentioned uh, the prefrontal cortex and uh, a lot of our listeners know, some might not know, our brain actually consists of three brains, you know, the prefrontal, the midbrain and the uh, limbic or, or I'm sorry, the reptilian brain. And you talk about in the book, which I found very important, um, three, uh, or you discuss three effective ways 
that can help people come out of their fight, flight, freeze, fold response. Um, and I found that, again, particularly important because being someone in recovery, I know that when I am resorting or back into a place of active addiction, I am no longer coming from my prefrontal cortex. I am now operating from my reptilian brain. That has completely taken over. It is the CEO. My frontal cortex might be telling me this is not good for you. And I have literally cried while holding a bottle of alcohol or looking at lines on the table that I didn't want to drink or I didn't want to snort. But I was back in this place of where that reptilian brain was so much stronger. You know, it's that primal brain brain. So, you know, if you talk about, and not just for those, of course, who struggle with addiction, um, but in general, which you do talk about in the book, some of the effective ways that can help people come out of that place from that, from that old brain. Oh, well, so my thinking may have continued to evolve (laughs) since, since I wrote Bouncing Back and even since I wrote Resilience. Sure. And so, I do try to talk about the lower brain, the nervous system, sure. which can hijack the functioning of the prefrontal cortex when we're frightened enough or angry right. enough and completely throw that functioning offline yeah. so that we're left with fight, flight, freeze, numb out, collapse. Yeah. So I do try to normalize for people how normal this is. Our nervous system is hardwired to take care of us right. in all situations. And we're getting messages from the nervous system 24-7, even, un- I mean, especially unconsciously, we don't even have to be aware of them. Right. Though if the higher brain becomes aware of them, we're more likely to be able to manage them. But when, okay, so we have this nervous system that will rev up or shut down. And we activate our nervous system in a positive way when we're excited about something, when we're motivated about something, and we want to go out in the world and do something. We want to learn and create and produce and play. And so it's the positive activation of our nervous system that allows us to write music and create governments and try to solve global warming. You know, it's the positive activation of the nervous system. It's only when we're frightened, we have a sense of danger or life threat, and we overactivate, we go into anxiety or fear or anger, and we're not managing that overactivation, that we need to be able to calm down and bring it back to the range of resilience. And I, I will try to answer the question of how to do that in a moment. No, no, please. <laughs> we have time. But, but the opposite is we have the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, which in a positive way allows us to calm down, be mellow. It's what allows us to take a nap on the beach or fall asleep after making love. But when we overactivate the parasympathetic because we sense we're in danger and the activation hasn't solved the problem, so we tend to numb out and collapse, we go powerless. And so people can experience this when they shut down or withdraw and they're not facing the situation. So we can rev up too much into anxiety. We can shut down too much into depression. And what we want to be is 
in this range of resilience where we can actually be calm but alert and engaged. So ways that we can do that, there are a lot of tools to both calm down the nervous system like the hand on the heart that we just talked about or or to reactivate the nervous system and that can best be done when we can be around safe people who can be with us and their nervous system can help regulate our nervous system and that can happen even unconsciously Mm -hmm. we can pick up the vibes of people who feel calm and safe and when we can be with people who don't necessarily need us to be particularly different they can just let us borrow their nervous system so to speak (laughs) to feel calm and regulated again then we can reactivate we can connect we can engage with that safe person and then we can begin to re-engage with the world again so we have tools that we can use on our own we also have tools that we can use with other people to regulate the nervous system and probably when it feels safe enough regulating our nervous system by being in the physical proximity or even hugging and touching someone who is safe touch actually is the fastest way we have to regulate our nervous system so hand on our own heart getting a hug from another person it's the fastest way we have to come back into that range of resilience i love that and uh yeah i I actually had read about that a few years ago and started doing that in some of my workshops having people and it, it can be awkward but when when it's with strangers but you know let's um let's hug and hold for 20 seconds and mm-hmm. see what happens and wow yeah it, it really what a world of difference touch makes communication um just being there with one another so mm-hmm. thank you linda for sharing yeah. that and because, uh, yeah go ahead be, please because because the touch is what activates the oxytocin Right, yes. Warm, safe touch is what activates the oxytocin. Then we have that hormone of safety and trust and bonding and belonging going through the body brain again. That is exactly how it works. Yeah, beautifully said. And thank you for reiterating that point. Um, So as we are wrapping up on time, we have covered a lot of ground, but I want to let listeners know we have barely begun to scratch the surface of Linda's wonderful book, Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. Uh, if you scroll down on the Be Here Now Network website, you can find a link to that book. Uh, you will also find a link to Linda's website to learn more about her and her work. But again, Linda, I, uh, I would love to leave the floor with you um like i said we have talked about a lot in this short time and again <laughs> barely scratched the surface of your book so i would love to give you the opportunity to close with anything we did not uh, have a chance to discuss that you feel is important for the listeners to take away from this time they've spent with us oh i appreciate that chris so The book really focuses inwardly on our own brain and our own experiences, tools that we use to work with our brain so that we can better shift our behaviors, shift our patterns of responding and coping. And that can be in the context of our family, social community, 
we or someone we love loses our health, loses the job, loses their home, loses their hope. But as the more I teach about resilience and the possibilities of recovering our resilience and training our resilience, I'm really coming to think that we have a responsibility to learn how to be resilient <clears throat> because we live in a world that presents challenges to many, many people, including ourselves, every day. Um, the economic crises, political oppression, racial oppression, discrimination. There's so much difficulty that we have to deal with in our world. Yeah. And to not um, <clears throat> go into shutdown or collapse as we deal with the refugee crisis or environmental pollution or, you know, the things that happen we see in the news every day so even though my book focuses on an individual person becoming more resilient in their own life in their own being i think we have a responsibility to become more resilient so that in fact we can bring more kindness and compassion and effective social change in the larger world that we live in so that's what i would hope people would take their own resilience beyond their personal self into the world to really create effective change. You know, Linda, I think you just summed up my hope for my show in general. Um, so I thank you for that. That is always the intention behind uh, the guests I have on that we show for ourselves, but we show for ourselves so, so that we can show up for others. And Resilience absolutely is an incredible book, one in which will help anyone, no matter beginner, uh, you know, 20 days on the path, 20 years on the path. I don't care. This book is for everyone. Um, and again, resilience, powerful practices for bouncing back from disappointment, difficulty, and even disaster. Uh, our good friends at New World Library have published it. I cannot recommend it enough. And lastly, again, if you are listening to this on the Be Here Now Network website, simply scroll down. You will see a link to Linda's website, a link to find the book, and um, all sorts of other goodies. So, Linda, again, I thank you sincerely for your time and sharing uh, your wisdom and life experience with us. And thank you, Chris, for the back and forth that just simply... Um, expands my own thinking as well. I appreciate the opportunity for that. Oh. Well, then I think uh, my job is done here. <laughs> That's when I know we've had a good show. So thank you again, Linda. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.